This is Planetary Radio. We hope all of you are enjoying the holidays. I'm Matt Kaplan, looking back at the loss of Columbia this week. Stay with us for a conversation with Robert Lee Holtz. The L.A. Times has just published his remarkable series of articles about what we now know about the tragedy and the amazing work by hundreds, if not thousands of people, which has generated this knowledge. Bruce Betts gives us more good reason to look up in What's Up, along with our latest trivia contest. First, though, here's Emily, returning to answer one of your questions about that big backyard we call the solar system. I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, what are the fastest moving objects in the solar system? Comets are the solar system's fastest solid bodies. The speed of a comet depends on the size of its orbit and its proximity to the sun. An object in space will reach its fastest orbital speed when it passes closest to the sun at a position in its orbit called perihelion. Among short-period comets and asteroids, an asteroid called 1995CR and a comet named Machholz-1 are the fastest. At perihelion, both of these objects are eight times closer to the Sun than the Earth is and reach speeds above 110 kilometers per second. You can see animations of both objects on our website at planetary.org. For comparison, the better-known comets Halley and Hale-Bopp reach more leisurely maximum speeds of only around 50 kilometers per second. But these short-period comets and asteroids are left in the dust by another class of solar system speed demons, the sun grazers. To hear about sun grazers, stay tuned to Planetary Radio. For the last six days, readers of the Los Angeles Times have seen a remarkable series on page one. I've been reading the Times for a very long time, and I've never seen anything like it. Called Butterfly on a Bullet, the six installments trace the aftermath of the Shuttle Columbia disaster. It is the work of Times staff writer Robert Lee Holtz, and he joins us now on Planetary Radio. Lee, thanks very much for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be talking with you. And I should say, we're speaking on uh, the Friday before this program is first heard, and it happens that I've just read the last installment of the series. I congratulate you. It's quite an accomplishment. Well, thank you very much. We invested a lot of time and effort in it. It shows. Why Butterfly on a Bullet? Well, um, as it happens, uh, Butterfly on a Bullet is a uh, a descriptive phrase that I should really credit to um, a a retired astronaut uh, named Story Musgrave who uh, used to call the shuttle system the butterfly bolted to a bullet um, because the winged orbiter, uh, which is the, really the, the, the portion of the space system that, that the astronauts actually inhabit and fly in, as your listeners no doubt know, is a very distinctive-looking white delta-shaped thing, and it's attached uh, during launch to this enormous bullet-shaped copper fuel tank, and it's a quite evocative uh, word picture, which I was happy to uh, borrow and uh, and hopefully improve on slightly. But it does, it seems to me, go to the heart of uh, the essence of the space shuttle system, which is it is a, a very, very fragile flight vehicle that is uh, attached to this rather uh, brutal and ballistic equipment. Um, it's what it looks like on the pad, um, but it also sort of evokes the fragility of the whole thing, the bullet 
the tank itself, but also in this context, I think it evokes the uh, block of foam that uh, hit the left wing of the shuttle. And we'll, uh, we'll be talking about that foam, of course, and its critical role in what happened to Columbia. I mean, it, it struck me that this metaphor, butterfly and a bullet, is um, it's much more attractive, but in some ways somewhat similar to the old one used by the Mercury astronauts, spam in a can. Oh, well, the spam in the can uh, aphorism really was a kind of insulting um, thing that I think the X-15 test pilots first came up with right. uh, uh, as a way of dismissing the importance of the uh, manned space uh, effort because the uh, astronaut in the Mercury capsule, who would have very little direct flight control, they felt, would uh, uh, just simply be, you know, uh, uh, well-potted meat. You know, the idea of the butterfly and the bullet is just more, I think, goes to the beauty and the fragility um, of this space transportation system. Interesting that you uh, call it beautiful. I mean, I agree with you there, but it was it certainly was not the space transportation system that was um, hoped for by some of its designers, uh, one of whom, uh, a legendary man who could probably most accurately be described as the, the designer of this shuttle, you got to meet. Ah, you're referring to uh, Max Faget. I sure am. Maxime uh, Faget, who was the, I believe, the first chief engineer of the uh, manned spaceflight program, uh, a guy who uh, was responsible for the design of, I think, every manned spacecraft, every manned U.S. spacecraft that, uh, that has uh, flown, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, and contributed uh, a great deal to the final shape and design of the space shuttle system. He did have a very different idea of how the uh, shuttle system uh, ought to work. Uh, it was fascinating to sort of meet a guy like that who he's now in his early 80s and uh, has retired to uh, a home in Houston the opportunity to kind of sit and uh, listen to him replay a lot of these design debates and things made something that, that for some of us is, is almost ancient history come back to life. Mm. And that's one of the points that you cover in the series, that uh, one of the, the difficulties faced in the shuttle program and in investigating this accident is that we're talking about a system that is, is quite elderly now and that a lot of the people who created it are either also retired, like Max Faget, or have passed away. Well, it turns out that the sort of the, the shuttle system's chief virtue um, has, over the course of time, become a, a terrible curse, if I may put it that way. Which is to say, its reusability. Hmm. I mean, we don't think of of this uh, often, perhaps, but you know, when you engineer something, I mean, you you. You take a, uh, you know, materials, and, 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 and they embody the design choices that you make. And with the shuttle system, its wing shape, uh, coordination of the various uh, systems, the particular approaches to the quite daunting problems of, you know, ascent and reentry, re uh, these are all kind of 1972 ideas. And because the system is reusable, and for a variety of reasons, some of which are technical, but some of which are political, it's never been replaced itself. We're stuck with these choices, some of which were, were quite wise and good, but some of which were limited by what we knew at the time, and we've never really had a, 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 the fundamental opportunity to incorporate the lessons that we've learned about uh, human spaceflight that the, that the shuttle has taught us. So every time we launch this vehicle, we're sort of going back in time to 1981 with the best that we could do you know, 22 years ago. 
and yet there is still no viable alternative. And so we continue, even in this period following the, this terrible accident, uh, to pin our hopes for manned spaceflight, at least uh, for the near term, on, on this system. Yes, and I, and I don't really uh, think that NASA can be faulted for that. That's a, that's a decision that, that lies properly in the White House and in Congress. And mm. um, when the idea of an orbital space plane that might in some way serve as a replacement for the space shuttle was broached uh, this fall in Congress, I mean, it was promptly uh, slapped down. So whether we like it or not, um, we are uh, stuck with the shuttle. Let's talk about NASA a little bit. One of the clear conclusions, I, I think it's safe to call it that, of your series, is that uh, we can be pretty confident that we know what caused this accident. And I wonder if, in your opinion, NASA was overconfident in some respects. For example, or in particular, regarding the likelihood of damage to the system that protected the shuttle when it re-entered Earth's atmosphere. Well, I think that we can be quite confident that we understand the, the, both the technical and the, and the human causes of the, of the Columbia accident, although it, it had took a, a great deal of, of uh, scientific and uh, engineering investigation to arrive at the conclusion. We all, I think, know that the technical cause of the accident was a foam that shut off a spacecraft's 15-story external tank and hitting it at the particularly vulnerable spot on its left wing and the superheated gases of reentry coming into that hole in the wing during its uh, final glide home and basically burning the craft up from the inside out, causing a catastrophic breakout. The human cause, actually, I think it's probably more insidious than, than simple overconfidence. It's kind of a, uh, an unfortunate combination of, of time and success it's important to remember that it's been 17 years since the shuttle program has had a fatal accident since uh, Challenger in 1986. And a lot of things happened in that 17 years. A generation of spacecraft managers, as you alluded to earlier, turned over. Um, new people came in, new people who were not connected to the creation and construction of this spacecraft, and so perhaps didn't quite understand it as well. But they also, um, I think, came to this indifferent, I think, is perhaps a better word than overconfidence. That's mm. a harsh word, but mm -hmm. I choose it with care. Indifferent to the kinds of engineering risks that were built into the design of the spacecraft itself. Because the truth is, is that the particular technical flaw that um, killed the seven astronauts aboard Columbia could have happened at, on any flight in the 22 years that the space shuttle has been flying because the problem of the foam shedding off the tank is uh, one that has plagued the spacecraft since his first launch. An important design characteristic of the heat uh, shield system that protects the astronauts during uh, launch and reentry is that nothing, repeat nothing, underscore nothing, can strike that system because it's very, very fragile. And, you know, these people, I think, in, in uh, believing that they were operating in in good faith, uh, just got used to the idea that they could violate that specification mm. with impunity. Simply ceased taking the kinds of precautions that um, earlier shuttle managers had taken as regards that danger. 
Lee, we need to pause for a moment, take a quick break, and then uh, come back and talk some more about this series that you have written for the Los Angeles Times, Butterfly and a Bullet, about the uh, Columbia disaster and its aftermath. Planetary Radio will continue right after this. Come to Pasadena's other big New Year's party. Wild About Mars comes to the Pasadena Convention Center on Saturday and Sunday, January 3rd and 4th. Join Buzz Aldrin, Ray Bradbury, and Bill Nye, the science guy, as the first Mars exploration rover arrives at the Red Planet. Order your discounted tickets by calling 1-877-PLANETS today. That's toll-free, 1-877-PLANETS, or online at planetary.org. Matt Kaplan back with Planetary Radio and our special guest this week, Robert Lee Holtz. Lee Holtz is the author of a special L.A. Times series, which has been appearing for six days on the first page of the L.A. Times, very prominently displayed. And uh, one thing, Lee, I'm sorry people won't see if they go to the website, are the beautiful illustrations that have gone with these six six installments. But it is well worth reading nevertheless. And even if you're uh, not where you can easily get a copy of the L.A. Times, it's on the website at latimes.com. Slash Columbia, and of course we will have that website uh, URL, that address, on uh, the website of the Planetary Society where this radio program is posted. Uh, Lee, we only have a few minutes left. Let's talk a little bit about some of the people who became part of this really vast uh, and and sometimes, though not always, highly technical investigation that that followed the Columbia disaster. I suppose it it really started even before the appointment of the uh, Columbia Accident Investigation Board because there were people out there who actually witnessed what happened to Columbia and uh, became involved because of that. I, I think there's a, a Caltech radio astronomer that you spoke to? Yes. Uh, uh, one of the things that was I, I found just quite extraordinary about the whole process was that this terrible accident almost instantly called forth a level of interest and enthusiasm and energy and creativity that I think the human spaceflight program has not seen in decades. Mm. Various people that, that we highlighted in the uh, L.A. Times series embodied this, and, and you've uh, mentioned um, one, uh, Tony Beasley, who is a uh, radio astronomer at Caltech and is in, manages the... Uh, Caltech Radio Observatory in the Owens Valley, which was uh, under the flight path of the uh, entering Columbia. And uh, he was out there with his family. Uh, uh, the mother-in-law was visiting from Australia hmm. um, out there in the pre-dawn, and they saw the uh, spacecraft re-enter. And, and uh, of course, like many people in California and, and uh, uh, then points uh, east, saw you know very puzzling visual phenomena you know as the as the spacecraft uh, flew over you know flares flashes sparks uh when they uh uh you know heard uh, that the columbia had actually broken up catastrophically over east texas they you know immediately on their own tried to piece together what they had seen and uh, what was fascinating to me was how um people like uh, beasley um uh, astronomers uh, physicists uh, aerospace uh, enthusiasts who had um you know, maybe just a, a, a sightseer's interest in the shuttle itself uh, and the normal course of events, but who had sort of special technical knowledge, whether it was engineering knowledge or scientific knowledge, felt not just uh, the interest in doing something to try and help understand what happened to Columbia, but an obligation, I mean, a very strong sense of public duty. I find that very impressive, and it surfaced in dozens of ways. This was an enormous investigation. I mean, just the ground search alone 
was the largest search ever conducted in North America, and, and no doubt the largest such search ever conducted in the world, but I really don't know that there's anyone who keeps track of those things. <laughs> well, and not, um, that ground search uh, is a good example of how this involved uh, not just scientists and engineers. You uh, tell the personal story, uh, the, the experience of, of a fellow named Chauncey Birdtail. Yes, it was a, a very good example. Um, he is uh, a contract firefighter from... Uh, the uh, Grovant um, Indian Reservation up near the uh, Canadian border, about 60 miles uh, south of the Canadian border in Montana. The U.S. Forest Service at one point uh, put out a call for uh, volunteers uh, to come to Louisiana and East Texas to help uh, beat the bushes. Um, they had to search an area roughly the, the size of the state of Connecticut. It's an enormous amount of terrain to be covered, and so Birdtail, like many, just volunteered to join the search. Now, he's a quite wonderful uh, character, if I may say so, because he had a lot of family obligations. His wife was pregnant, uh, things like that. And he, but he, had, he had to pay a, a driving fine, and, and the, the money from the Forest Service was pretty good. And so, he initially uh, uh, went down to join the search simply as a way of earning some spare change. But as the days went on, and he he uh, got caught up in the the emotions surrounding the accident, and whatever. I mean, he himself, who had no contact with space, space flight and no particular interest in it. Uh, began to feel the romance of this uh, great exploration effort, and at the end, I think, was a quite uh, changed person. And actually uh, played a pretty important role in what he discovered. In a funny way, you could say he almost played the most important role, because it was Birdtail who found the crucial piece of uh, spacecraft wreckage that really helped unlock the secrets, the technical secrets of the accident. He found the um, onboard orbiter experiment recorder, which... Um, had uh, spooled onto its uh, very old-fashioned reel-to-reel tapes all of the onboard uh, sensor data, very little of which um, was ever transmitted during the mission itself to uh, mission control. So while um, Columbia itself had hundreds and hundreds of temperature sensors and pressure gauges and strain gauges and things, all of that data um, up until that point was simply lost in the wreckage. Birdtail was the guy who found the black box, the, the crucial missing link. There are stories like this throughout the investigation. I, I think of uh, the fellow you described early in the series who uh, discovered how very vulnerable the heat-resistant panels were just by dropping pencils on, on them. The, another place called the Hogworks, which uh, I wish we had time to talk about, but we are running pretty short of time. I certainly and very strongly encourage our listeners to check out uh, the, the series that uh, Robert Lee Holtz has written uh, in the L.A. Times. Again, it's latimes.com slash Columbia. Lee, with just a, a couple of minutes left here, where does all of this leave us? Where do we and NASA now go, and do you think the steps that should be taken are being taken? Well, I think that you know there are two answers uh, to your question. Um, the first is that um, NASA's most uh, remarkable achievement, uh, I think, is, is underappreciated, and it's not the space shuttle or the Hubble Space Telescope or the Mars landers, which are due um, uh, at Mars, I remind your listeners, in just a couple of days. Uh, but it has made space exploration a routine part of our government's activities. I mean, if you think about it, every year as a routine part of our budgeting exercises, we allocate billions and billions of dollars for the exploration of space. I mean, that's an unbelievable thing. That's routine spaceflight. And I think we don't sufficiently appreciate that. Now, as, um, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the, the future of, um, of a manned spaceflight, uh, the Accident Investigation Board 
concluded its its a quite excellent report with a a call for a national debate on where America should be going in space and that is a conversation which has not taken place and perhaps the fact that uh, neither congress nor the white house is interested in such a con- uh, conversation is telling in and of itself the desire to explore the desire to visit new places the desire to sort of be the first to put human footprints uh, in the soil i mean it seems to me to be sort of a, a, a part of the characteristics of the human species but uniquely perhaps uh, part of the american character and mm. i think that when we uh, turn our backs on the, on that impulse uh, we lose something very important of ourselves couldn't agree with you more Robert Lee Hotz, thanks very much for joining us on uh, Planetary Radio today. His series in the L.A. Times, six parts, six installments, is Butterfly on a Bullet. You'll find it at the latimes.com website. And we do have a link uh, on the page at uh, planetary.org, our own website. Look forward to uh, reading your work in the future, as I've enjoyed it very much in the past. Well, thank you very much for uh, allowing me to come on and have this conversation with you. Our pleasure. I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A. What are the fastest-moving objects in the solar system? Sun grazers. Sun grazers are comets on highly elongated orbits that pass very close to the sun. A sun-grazing comet discovered by the SOHO spacecraft in 1996 achieved a maximum speed of over 1,000 kilometers per second, over 30 times faster than the Earth moves in its orbit. At this speed, you could make the trip from Los Angeles to New York in just over three seconds. The highest theoretical speed for a solar system object would be even faster, about 1,600 kilometers per second, for a sun-grazing comet in a nearly parabolic orbit with its perihelion near the edge of the sun. However, these super-swift sun-grazers pay dearly for their reckless lifestyle. Eventually, in a final sunward plunge, nearly all of them are consumed by the solar inferno. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. Be sure to provide your name and how to pronounce it, and tell us where you're from. And now, here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. Well, it's that awkward neither this nor that time between Christmas and New Year's. A pleasant time, though, and... I don't know if you could find a better time for What's Up with Bruce Betts. Hello, Bruce. Hello. It's a fabulous time for What's Up. Of course, it's always a fabulous time for What's Up. That's right. You've got some great things to see in the sky. And they're the same planets I've been talking about, but let me tell you, I was out looking at them last night, crystal clear skies. They're just beautiful. You've got Venus looking stunningly bright in the west uh, shortly after sunset. Up above that, you've got Mars and Saturn nearly overhead in the middle of the night, and then Jupiter coming up after midnight, but also stunningly bright. If you've got a nice view of the sky, try something fun and find one of these planets and then look in a line crossing roughly from east to west, and you'll see the other planets along this line because, of course, all the planets orbit in almost the same plane, uh, the Earth's plane being called the plane of the ecliptic. There you go, a little little education for you. But it's fun to, to watch them in the line across the sky. Good stuff. Good planets. We like them. And a cool time to do that just before uh, 
uh, spirit arrives at Mars, I, I, as most people are probably listening to us. Uh, but I digress. We'll get back to that in a moment. What else do you have for us? Well, speaking of Mars, this week in space history, we look back on a launch, the last launch of a U.S. lander to Mars before the Mars Exploration Rovers. January 3rd, 1999, Mars Polar Lander was launched. It was later lost. Uh, on its way to Mars, making the arrival of these new rovers all the more exciting. Let's move on to Random Spacebook! Did you know, Matt, actually you probably did, that many of the uh, larger rocks about the Viking landing sites as well as the Mars Pathfinder landing site were given fun names? Oh, yes, uh, because yeah. I have I have the Planetary Society poster of those, and they're a crack-up. <laughs> and you can go to planetary.org, follow the links to the store, and you, too, can order this poster. But they are, <laughs> and a lot of people are familiar with Pathfinder. But Viking also had a lot of fun names, including Toad, Badger, and Guppy, which, as uh, with some of the Pathfinder names, were named because of some resemblance to those creatures. Uh, they also had one's name for all seven dwarfs, and the largest of the rocks near the landers was named Big Joe. <laughs> all right, good stuff. Let's go on to the trivia contest. Last week we asked you, what famous dead physics dude was born on December 25th in the 1600s? How'd we do, Matt? We did great. Uh, we continue to get more responses than we used to, uh, so we hope you'll join that crowd. Uh, we do pick our winder, winners randomly, randomly chosen this time. Uh, it is a past winner, Liam Turley of uh, Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, who had the correct answer, Bruce. Isaac Newton, born December 25, Christmas Day, 16, is it 42 or 92? I may have written it down wrong. I think it's 42, 1642. Liam, congratulations. Congratulations to you. This week's trivia, we're going to talk about the Mars Exploration Rovers, which, of course, the first Spirit will land January 3rd, 2004, just a few days away. We're very excited. The Mars Exploration Rovers have rad motors. This, of course, is Astrobot Biff Starling's favorite piece of equipment on the spacecraft because they're rad. <laughs> what does rad stand for, and how many rad motors does each spacecraft have? Radical dude. To, <laughs> radical dude. Go to planetary.org slash radio and find a way to enter our contest and win stuff. Speaking of Mars Exploration Rovers, of course, we've uh, also had the European Space Agency Mars Express Orbiter went into orbit successfully around Mars during this last week. And uh, as of this recording, the Beagle 2 lander had not been heard from. But uh, Mars Express, very successful. We send our congratulations to the European Space Agency. And we look forward to the uh, first landing of the Mars Exploration, Exploration Rover Spirit on January 3rd. We will, of course, be having Wild About Mars in Pasadena. People can tune into the webcast on the web at planetary.org slash WAM, W-A-M, or come visit us in Pasadena. See Matt. He's real, not just a hologram. <laughs> see me and see other actually genuinely famous people and have fun experiencing the landing live and a giant screen. Absolutely humongous. And not only will you see Bruce, you may see Bruce juggle. <laughs> Let's not dissuade the people. No, no, no. It's, it's worth seeing for at least a couple of minutes, folks. And uh, because of Wild About Mars, next week's Planetary Radio will be a special edition of the show. Now, exactly what that means, we don't know yet because it hasn't happened. But uh, you can bet that there will be some good surprises and probably some very interesting people featured as part of the show. And uh, don't worry, we'll have What's Up. Once again, Bruce, that's it. 
fabulous. Well, everyone, as the uh, year closes out, look up the night sky. Think of all the things you're thankful for in the year 2003. Thank you. Good night. Happy, Happy New, New Year, year, Bruce. Happy New Year, man. Bruce Betts there, the Director of Projects for the Planetary Society, who joins us each week right here on Planetary Radio. Please do return for our special show next week and check out the live webcast Saturday and Sunday, January 3 and 4 from Wild About Mars in Pasadena. Finally, keep your fingers crossed for the safe arrival of spirit on the Red Planet. Take care, everyone.